city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. What is pandemic policing? And are constitutional violations being committed in the United States by law enforcement? Does weak leadership in law enforcement have anything to do with this? Do officers who are poorly trained and don't understand the United States or state constitutions and the United States Bill of Rights specific to First and Fourth Amendments, do they understand really what they're doing out there? And are orders and edicts and directions really laws that can be enforced by the enforcers of the rule of law. Welcome to A Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, retired police detective, certified medical investigator, and a subject matter expert on law enforcement, qualified in federal and state courts. I'm joined today by two law enforcement professionals and colleagues, Tim Barfield, who is a chief of police in the state of Ohio, and Kevin Davis, who is a working supervising officer, but also a federal and state qualified subject matter expert. So I welcome you to the show, gentlemen, and let's just get right into it. You know, I'd like to start uh, talking about our oath of office. You know, I wrote a recent article about pandemic policing and the rise of what I refer to as the new national socialism and how police may be participating in that. And I drew to my oath of office, which I took over 46 years ago, and I know both of you took oaths of office just exactly worded like mine. So Tim, let's just start out with the oath of office that a law enforcement officer takes, and tell me about your thoughts about that oath of office and how it guides you every single day in the performance of your duties, both as a working street officer and as a chief of police. Thank you, Ron. I I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, we talk of the oath of office and and, uh, oftentimes people are conditioned to follow the orders of their chiefs and their bosses. And and of course that's, that's right until we get to these trying times like this, because we didn't take an oath to our chief or our mayor or our governor. We took an oath to uphold and defend and support the Constitution of the United States. And, um, of course, that's the issue we're talking about. And, of course, for me, and quite honestly, I think most policemen across the United States, that is their guiding principle. And how about you, Kevin? How do you feel about that? Well, you know, there's a, uh, <clears throat> there are levels of priority in that uh, oath of office, uh, you know, to support and defend the Constitution of the United States the state laws, and in my case, it's the laws of the state of Ohio, and then local ordinances. And they're, you know, said the oath is in that specific order for a reason, because, you know, obviously the Constitution and the Bill of Rights of the United States supersede the ordinances of my city and the orders of uh, health department personnel uh, within my city or within my state. 
And uh, I think that priority is there for a reason. And as police officers, for instance, we can't lose sight of the forest through the trees and what our mission is. You know, when we went through the police academy and, uh, you know, and I started in 1974, Kevin, what year did you start in? Well, originally, (laughs) (laughs) we might get into a little bit. Originally, it was uh, 1982 is when I was sworn in as a deputy sheriff. Okay. And Tim, how about you? 1981. Okay. (laughs) Youngsters. So, (laughs) but, you know, we, we had, uh, when we went through uh, the police academy, I think we were relatively well-trained on the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And and even before that, I mean, even starting with high school and going into, into college, uh, we received, you know, our, our education on, uh, in civics, where we learned all about our constitution, both the federal and the state constitution. We learned about the Bill of Rights and, and we, we learned about what each one of those Bill of Rights, you know, stood for. D- did you guys get that same education that I did? I did. Yes. And, and, indeed. And, and as I've gone along through my career, basic understanding of the Fourth Amendment has expanded so much because like you, Dr. Ron, my specialty is use of force. And we know that the Fourth Amendment is, is our, uh, uh, you know, main or primary subject, uh, you know, that deals with use of force. So uh, the answer is yes. And I've tried to pass that along as an instructor to both my basic academy cadets as well as my in-service officers. You know, I had an opportunity uh, when I was a younger man and after I retired uh, from formal active law enforcement to direct one of the state of California's criminal justice uh, and law enforcement training centers and basic, uh, basic academies. And in uh, California, just like Ohio, just like Texas, every other state, uh, officers are certified by the state when they go through a police academy and there's a whole bunch of subjects there. Uh, and it's just like a college. It's actually a mini college. It lasts about, you know, depending on the state, ours in California lasted uh, 29 weeks. And there are subject matters in the state of California. We refer to them as learning domains in, in the state of Texas. They're called modules, but the fourth amendment falls into a learning domain or a module referred to as laws of arrest and search and seizure. Before that, we get one on ethics, we get one on the criminal justice system and on law enforcement and how we're supposed to comport ourselves. But, you know, Kevin, uh, speaking specifically to what you're talking about on the Fourth Amendment, and we have our guiding principles as set down by case law by the United States Supreme Court in cases like you know, Terry versus Ohio, 1968. You guys know that because you're from Hawaii, uh, from uh, Ohio. And also, uh, Kevin, we talk about Graham versus Connor. And essentially, what the Supreme Court states and all the lower courts mimic in their consistent rulings is that we balance the government's need against the intrusion upon the individual. So, Anytime that there is a detention, anytime that there's an arrest, anytime that there's a use of force, we balance the governmental need. And and for our civilian followers out there, it's comprised of a couple of components. Number one, how serious is this circumstance? And number two, is there any eminent jeopardy to other people? And we balance that against the intrusion 
upon the individual. What do I mean by that? I mean, you know, what type of detention, what type of arrest, or what quanta of force we use against that individual. And it, there has to be a balance based on objective reasonableness. So let's just talk about these intrusions upon the Fourth Amendment rights. And uh, Tim, I'd like to start with you. Are there any uh, instances that are questionable about law enforcement actions that, that you're aware of in the state of Ohio that, that you can just discuss? We don't have to mention the agency or, or name names or anything, but just the circumstances I think are pretty important. Sure. Well, I mean, it, it has been going on. I, I will, again, I want to, uh, I want to uh, really recognize the fact that so many policemen are actually doing a really good job. So I, I want to remember that, but um, I, I know of a local case here where a guy was on somebody else's property. <clears throat> that man was arrested because he was driving under the influence on his ATV, um, which was perfectly fine. But the other guy was arrested because he was on his guy's property in violation of the, uh, the stay at home order. So, um, you know, those kinds of things, just being at somebody else's property, I mean, you talk about simple, the right to, the right to assemble or the, the, the right to freedom, you know, um, those kinds of issues are real concerns. And I, I just don't know that's where we want our police acting. I think we want to be more on the advisory portion of this. Yeah. Kevin, can you think of a, a recent case in, in Ohio or maybe even another state? And we, we can talk about several cases. Well, you know, the, there seems to be all too frequent videos that go viral uh, that I can remember one where three uh, division of natural resources in Hawaii, three officers with that agency wrestled a, a young man. I think he was 18 years old to the ground when he was sitting on a stone watching his dog and his brother swim. And there's a couple different things. First of all, uh, you know, the, the enforcement activity alone, we talk about social distancing. Well, how about these police officers safety when they have to close distance and go hands-on with these people for what for sitting on a stone is that really where we're at in the united states uh absent a codified uh, ordinance or a state law and certainly no uh, federal law would uh, you know exists that uh, would allow that so what basically what officers are doing is they're enforcing these edicts, these pronouncements, these uh, executive orders, absent uh, uh, reasonable suspicion or probable cause. You know, I'm, I'm glad you bring out uh, that video in the state of Hawaii because I saw that video. And, uh, and I also went into the Facebook post of the wife of the guy that the officers took to the ground uh, fairly, fairly harshly. And uh, when I look at that video, as you did, there were all sorts of people on the beach, looked like there was social distancing going on, but they're out in the clear air uh, where there's a breeze, there, where there's sunlight, you know, vitamin D. And I have to, and I look at these things as a medical investigator. So I ran some statistics. I don't have them, you know, in front of me right now, but a couple of them uh, stood out to me. And, and that is of all the, you have several million people. It's not a big state, but you have, you have a couple of million people in the state of Hawaii. And they only had, at least as of this week, they only had less than 700 
total reported cases of COVID-19. With deaths, I mean, I think the deaths were extremely low. I think there were under 20 deaths. And then when you looked at the age group of the deaths, there were people in their late 80s and 90s and people that had pre-existing other conditions on board. And for that, for for less than 700 COVID-reported cases and for less than 20 deaths, they shut down the entire state of Hawaii. And the state of Hawaii remains to be shut at this particular time. And so you have the conservation police going out and taking a Fourth Amendment uh, law enforcement action where they use force against this guy. And I will guarantee you that the state of Hawaii Constitution and their Bill of Rights uh, does not allow for this. And so, uh, and, and I want to mention some other ones. So, so statistically, and you're going to hear me say this again and again with these different cases because I ran a lot of the statistics. Statistically, the chance of contracting COVID-19 in the state of Hawaii and the chance of dying from COVID-19 in the state of Hawaii are medically insignificant. So when we go back to our balance between the governmental need and the intrusion upon the individual, it doesn't satisfy the law. Tim, your thoughts? I absolutely agree. And I I think it's interesting as we've kind of uh, moved along this process so far that you're seeing more and more courts uh, upholding the uh, the rights of the people against some of these uh, some of these actions. And so I think it's difficult because we're really in, in untried times. We have never seen a lockdown across um, certainly across all the United States like we have this time. And so there hasn't been a lot of chance. There are some cases and documentation on rulings on uh, quarantines and, and isolation, but none um, as draconian as, as we seem to have found in locking up of people that are perfectly healthy. And um, I think as we, travel down this road, I think that uh, this conversation will have proved to be a lot more um, solid. I think, I think we'll be on good grounds if we're wise about uh, how we apply these laws. Yeah, you know, and, and before I go over to Kevin, I want to echo what, what you said, Tim, and that is the vast, vast majority of law enforcement officers, supervisors, uh, and administrators are completely... Uh, angry, surprised, and they find this type of activity that we're discussing abhorrent. Uh, They are, as you said, constitutional officers. They understand the United States Constitution and its Bill of Rights, and uh, they want no part of this whatsoever. Kevin, how about some of your thoughts with regards to the level of intrusion versus the governmental need? Well, I think, you know, we were facing a big unknown. You would like to think that a lot of these uh, executives and a lot of these politicians were acting uh, in the people's best interest. You'd like to think that, but as time goes on, I think that starts to, we start to have legitimate questions about it. And in Ohio, for instance, I know some of these, the suits and some of these injunctions and, you know, the legal actions to stop some of this stuff has been stymied because we have, uh, the courts were literally shut down. You know, in in many areas, the docket (laughs) is is closed until June. That said, in Ohio, for instance, uh, the, the Ohio House and Senate, uh, is, uh, a bill has been introduced which would 
limit the uh, governor and the health director's uh, ability to do a, a lockdown or a stay-at-home order for 14 days. And then it would take a bipartisan, not bipartisan, but a group of, from both the Ohio House and Senate to come together to agree to extensions. You compare that with Illinois, where you just had the governor, through an executive order, extend his uh, his abilities uh, and his powers uh, for 150 days. And, uh, you know, it's just... Uh, look at Wisconsin, you know, I mean, they just had a, a, a judge come in and say, no, this is excessive. Uh, and then, as you said, let's pay attention to the science, the facts, and the numbers, and, and let's not focus on the fear anymore. Yeah, no, that that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, on both sides, this, like uh, Tim said, this is going to be a very interesting times moving forward. Uh, I saw that the governor in the state of Michigan, uh, and, and you know, she's had all sorts of issues and she's had people literally protest uh, and open carry at the state capitol. Uh, she uh, was trying very hard to extend her power uh, to make, uh, you know, edicts and laws absent the legislature. Uh, and at the same time, there was a, a recent uh, state court ruling or actually a federal court ruling. And I can't remember what state it was. It might even have been Wisconsin. Uh, where there was an appeal by a church uh, to hold religious services, and the judge basically shut it down and called the the pastors that uh, you know filed uh, the uh, the appeal selfish. So we have a lot to talk about. Let's do this. Uh, let's take a break uh, for a second and come back. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and law enforcement expert, with my two expert colleagues, Chief Tim Barfield and Kevin Davis on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. As we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. Well, should it news deliver truth and inspire us to reach higher? With blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio. On our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. A bar decides to defy the governor's guidelines in the state of Texas with regards to uh, keeping businesses closed and also social distancing. The bartender is going broke. The bar owner who is the bartender is going broke. And 
several of his patrons decide to come to the bar and have a drink. The Ector County Sheriff decides that he's not going to tolerate any so-called violations of stores uh, opening up and violations of social distancing. So he decides that he's going to activate his SWAT team. They take an AMRAM armored vehicle with a number of heavily armored, you know, body armored officers carrying M4 uh, tactical rifles, and they basically storm the parking lot of the bar. I think the bar was called Big Daddy's. And you can see this on video. It's easily Googled. But you have citizens. Now, don't forget in, in uh, Texas, like many other states, people can open carry, and they can also concealed carry. And these officers are observed to disgorge from the SWAT vehicle with their automatic weapons and take these guys on. Uh, they're brandishing weapons, not, not the patrons, in the parking lot, and they take these people on. Meanwhile, the media is scurrying in and out of this entire confrontation. The citizens have got their hands out uh, up in the air. They're completely in compliance. These officers end up arresting uh, people, including the bartender, bar owner. So I'd like uh, to start with Kevin because, Kevin, you do what I do for a living as a, a police practices expert and also a use of force expert. I'd like to kind of start out and uh, ask your opinion of that type of law enforcement action. Then I'm going to go over to Tim and I'm going to fill everybody in on the statistics that I did up in uh, Ector County, which is where Odessa is located. So, Kevin, what do you think about something like that? I mean, you've been a tactical officer for years. Is that something you think you'd get involved in? No, and I would, uh, I would hope that uh, my agency would not uh, make the decision to field a, a tactical team in those kind of circumstances. You know, it seems like uh, we've kind of lost our way in this, uh, and, and in many cases lost our minds uh, when dealing with uh, Wuhan corona you know, and that's that uh, things that we had learned before about dealing with certain groups, about trying to go out and do public outreach, use our community uh, policing officers to go out and, and, and do low-key approaches. A lot of that has been, been lost, and now we're into the, uh, the heavy hand. And uh, I understand that there were possibly some people that were protesting in the back of this uh, open carry. And, you know, uh, that's what the danger in some of this government overreach, by the way. It kind of brings out the uh, uh, conspiracy theorists, and then you attract a lot of those people, and it turns into a tinderbox. But I also know that when, in comparison, when you look at First Amendment issues of the past with people like uh, Heather McDonald, uh, you know, and other uh, more conservative speakers, uh, uh, Dave Rubin, uh, Ben Shapiro, when they go to college campuses uh, and uh, Antifa comes out and um, protests, they don't engage in enforcement at all. They just have taken this hands-off approach. Uh, so I'm really lost <laughs> on some of this stuff. It seems that the rules that were applied to the anarchists and the people like Antifa 
uh, are not being applied to people who just want to go to work and are protesting uh, government restrictions. Yeah, or, or like a, a group like uh, Black Lives Matter that, that I've written about in, in my popular book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police. You know, the the police uh, get stand-down orders. Uh, and I, I, I'm going to go to Tim for a second. You know, I'm going to ask you a, a question, Tim. Do you think that... Uh, the law enforcement, when they come out, they're taking what we refer to as uh, the lower fruit on the tree. You know, they're going for the the easy arrest instead of the controversial arrest. What do you think about something like that? Well, I, you know, unfortunately, Ron, um, politics and police work don't mix very well. And I think that there's an awful lot of that um, involved in this in this whole discussion and quite honestly, what's going on across the country. Um but I think what we have to remember constantly um, is, you know, that with the police power comes ultimately the, the possibility of death in every arrest. Right. And we think back like on Eric uh, Garner in New York, and what we had was in essence a violation of, um, you know, tax law at best where he was selling onesies, right? Right. He's telling cigarettes uh, without a license and the, you know, the cigarette tax type of thing. So that's what you refer to when you're saying taxi, right? Right. Yes. And ultimately it resulted in his death. And my goodness, we know how that whole thing got taken out of perspective. And so um, I think politics enters this. I think good leadership can avoid most of this. And that's where we really where we really need, you know, uh, our leaders today, our, our chiefs and stuff to not get involved in the politics, but get, get involved in good leadership and guiding your people to avoid these kinds of situations. Well, you know, Tim, you're the perfect person to ask this question of. I mean, I've never been a chief of police, uh, and I consult, of course, with, with a number of them. But, I mean, there must, you guys, I have so much respect for you because you have to walk a very, tenuous, you know, tightrope when you're dealing with, you know, city manager forms of government or mayoral and city council forms of governments and and what they want a a chief of police to do because you are an at-will employee, you know, of them, either the city manager or the mayor and city council. And so, I mean, it seems to me that chiefs of police can often be caught between a rock and a hard spot. So I guess, how do you I'd like to hear some insight about that and how you deal with that. Well, it's, it's kind of involved, but um, I'll give you some highlights. First yeah, off, I'd love, I'd love to hear them. Uh, first off, um, I think if you want to be a chief of police, if you're not willing to be fired, then you shouldn't take the job. Um, and I, that's easy to say, I suppose. But uh, <clears throat> a big part of our problem is that uh, too many chiefs compromise because of exactly what you said is uh you know, they're worried about their job, and so they'll do whatever they're told to do, even if it goes against the rules. And then, and then, unfortunately, instead of taking the heat, they're willing to sacrifice one of their lambs underneath them, and that's unacceptable. But I think that part of the whole thing is to, to make sure you build good alliances. I, uh, I'm blessed to have a uh, – I, I work currently for a mayor who is the best boss I've ever worked for in my entire I've been in law enforcement for almost 40 years, and um, I saw so I'm, I'm blessed. However, um, we kind of see two different angles here, and um, I, I try to keep those open lines of communication and then doing the best we can to uh, 
make sure that when he gives me a direction, um, I communicate it to my, my men well. And I've issued four um, communications with my people since this issue happened, trying to give them the guidance that uh, I think meets both what the mayor ultimately is trying to accomplish and what we need to accomplish. And I, I, I think it's important, though, to take responsibility and be on the front line and not try to hide behind things or sacrifice your people. You know, Tim, before, before I go over to Kevin, I'm going to talk with him about a, a related subject. But do you find that your job as a chief of police, part of your job is to be an educator to your mayor, to your city council, and talk to them about sort of the big picture Bill of Rights, you know, what our case law uh, guidelines and obligations as law enforcement officers that took the oath are all about. Is that part, do you see that as an important part of your function as chief? I think that is, first off, I think it's an important part of a police officer's job. I don't think we do a good enough job. I've written some articles on this, but specifically, yes, I do think it's a chief's job. I think I'm an educator to my people below me, but to those above me. In fact, um, earlier this year, uh, earlier this year, end of last year, I can't remember now, <laughs> but uh, I actually did a, a use of force presentation for council so they could understand what it is we do and some of the implications there. So uh, I do think it's very important for us to um, get them to understand what we do. We, we have a unique job and people do not understand it and it's not a good idea to uh, not take the time to ex educate them. So I, I agree. Uh, Ron, I think that's very important for us. Well, I, I think that's a really proactive, very intelligent and proactive way of, uh, of of doing your job with respect to your mayor and city council. Hey, Kevin, I want to ask you a question along these lines, uh, because I know you get involved in uh, Monell cases uh, like I do, cases of deliberate uh, indifference of civil rights or negligence in, you know, training and direction and all these different things. And uh, basically for our, our listeners, a Monell claim essentially comes from a, a case law referred to as Monell versus the New York City Department of Social Services. And it even though it had absolutely nothing to do with law enforcement, it deals with uh, municipalities and, and litigation on the federal side, and uh, it can and result in very uh, large uh, punitive damages if what the public uh, finds, or the meaning that the trier of fact, a jury finds, that uh, a municipality was deliberately indifferent of people's civil rights. It, there's sort of a two-pronged uh, test there. Number one, you know uh, before you even do something that it's a deprivation of civil rights and then you go ahead and you do it. So with regards to, you know, Tim being a chief of police and those chiefs and sheriffs out there, what do you think the ramifications of customs and practices regarding COVID detentions and arrests that end up, should they end up being unconstitutional? What do you think the impact is going to be on some of these law enforcement agencies, because you and I represent both sides. You know, we represent municipalities and law enforcement agencies, but also plaintiffs in these cases. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think when you have bad law or bad executive decisions at the top, uh, I'm reminded of uh, the governor of New Jersey, who uh, when he was formulating his uh, restrictive uh, policies and orders, on you know, stay at home and essential uh, businesses and on and on said he did not consider the bill of rights. 
And that's, that's a pretty scary admission from somebody that's the governor of a state. And uh, you can't have, and, and let's be perfectly honest, uh, the original thing of the stay-at-home orders, et cetera, was to not overload uh, our medical industry, uh, not overload our hospitals. And that hasn't happened. And since that hasn't happened, you know, the, the, those rules and orders should be now r- releasing. Or, or easing, but you have, you know, even uh, the governor of Illinois who said he's empowering the police officers, and this was not a legislative uh, developed law, but on executive order only, that now Illinois officers can arrest is a misdemeanor, I forget what the fining schedules, it might be like $2,500 fine for violating his orders. And, uh, you know, the, my, my concern, of course, is that when the three of us know that uh, education about a Fourth Amendment, uh, the Fourth Amendment and use of force uh, law is, uh, you know, constantly lacking in law enforcement uh, and it's not where it should be. When we throw this on top of that, we open up a whole source of, uh, of litigation where officers and agencies should know better but they're acting uh, beyond the boundaries of their authority. No, you know, that, that's exactly right. And one of the things that, that people need to understand, and of course it's, it's state dependent, uh, but edicts and orders and directions and guidelines are not laws. Okay, laws have to be codified. They have to be legislated. Uh, there are uh, a couple of exceptions you know, and, and uh, in, the, in the state of California, for instance, when I was doing my research, because the governor in the state of California just decided that he was going to extend uh, the SIPs or the, you know, uh, shelter in place orders and keep businesses and everything closed, uh, I think another 30 days. So we're going well into uh, the end of June, beginning of July, there's been some discussion of extending it all the way out to August, but those are not laws. And when I got into the government code, I found that uh, the governor uh, cannot do this such a thing. Uh, when we talk about uh, in, in the state of California, our government code uh, talks about martial law, and it talks about specific circumstances when the governor is allowed to take extreme uh, measures. But also, the no matter what the governor does, he has to be in abeyance with the uh, California state constitution. And the California state constitution mirrors the federal constitution. And I think you guys would understand why. Okay. And there is again, this supremacy clause that basically states for those people, you know, our listeners that don't know it, you know, the supremacy clause basically uh, states that the federal constitution and our bill of rights trumps Uh, all of the state laws and edicts and orders. And it actually prohibits states like California from interfering, you know, with with, with federal government's exercise uh, of their their constitutional powers. So you basically can't do this stuff. So the, and what's, what's happening in the state of California, especially after he, he sort of arbitrarily and capriciously closed down the beaches in all uh, in, in Orange County, 
okay, which is a conservative county, and then left every beach that surrounds, uh, you know, Orange County, like Los Angeles County and San Diego County, left <laughs> left those beaches open, and they had much higher you know, rates of COVID than Orange County did. You know, guys like that are just going to get in trouble uh, with uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and even if it goes up to the United States Supreme Court, right? So, I mean, these are the types of things are dealing with. Uh, uh, Tim, your your quick thoughts? Well, I agree. Again, um, I I think part of the problem is our, our, you know, Kevin allude, alluded to the New Jersey governor that did, you know, he's, a, he's an elected official, took an oath just like we did to support and defend and doesn't even understand what the Constitution is. Um, we're we're a, a country that really has kind of forgotten our founding fathers and our founding documents. Yeah, no, no, exactly right. So, guys, what I would like to do is uh, get into a little bit of the uh, medical and law enforcement side of the entire pandemic policing controversy. So you're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli with my guests today, Chief Tim Barfield and Kevin Davis on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud. We'll be right back. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's Healthy, C-E-L-L dot sleep. So recently, in the state of Texas, which really surprises me, some of these cases are actually coming from the state of Texas, a hair salon owner uh, in Dallas County, which is where Dallas, Texas is, coincidentally, uh, is arrested during an undercover sting operation and uh, appears subsequently appears before the court uh, in our Texas District Court in Dallas County before a judge by the name of Moye, who is a real, what I call, uh, criminal justice, uh, social justice a warrior and a judicial advocate. And by the way, none of those descriptions, in my opinion, are positive things. But the uh, woman comes in before the judge, and she explains uh, why uh, she decided to open her business And that was basically because she was going broke. She was going to lose her business. She's paying rent. She had 19 different hairstylists working for her, all the subcontractors and their families, and everybody's going broke. And she says, look, I just can't take it anymore. I've got to feed my family, Your Honor, and I have a... uh, an obligation, I feel, an ethical obligation to take care of the hairstylists that work for me and, and they're losing everything and they've got to pay mortgages and, and car payments and they got to 
put food on a family for their kids. And the judge let her talk for about three minutes and then spent the majority of the court time uh, in self-aggrandizing comments that basically explaining to her why she's selfish and that if he doesn't apologize, she doesn't apologize before the court for her, quote, selfishness, unquote, he's going to sentence her to seven days in jail. Well, the woman, God bless her, uh, doesn't backpedal one bit. She says, I'm not going to apologize for trying to put food on my kid's table. And he summarily did sentence her right there to seven days in jail, had the bailiff come forward, handcuff her, and just take her away. And she immediately went to, to the Dallas County Jail. Here's one of the many problems I have with this, and I'd like to talk about it at length, uh, and that is... Uh, Number one, they released over a 1,000 felons from the Dallas County Jail because they were concerned that they were going to contract COVID-19 in the jail. Yet you take this woman who's never had as much as a parking ticket, this law-abiding woman that's just trying to provide for her kids and for her family of hairdressers, and you sentence her to jail and you put her in the very area of confinement that you release dangerous felons because you were scared that they were going to get COVID-19. Guys, can you figure out the sense of that? Kevin, I'll start with you. Well, I was following that case. I was quite honestly kind of amazed at some of the responses from uh, even uh, law enforcement officers and one uh, specific uh, retired law enforcement captain that I know that he was, well, there's, there's roles and there's, you know, she didn't abide it and she was, flagrantly she was flagrant in her disregard for other people's safety and what we have is this whole moral shaming thing that comes into it like like the judge in that case about how selfish she was you know we're not talking about people that are engaging in heretofore uh criminal behavior we're talking about people who have been deemed to be violators of this new social contract we have with these government edicts uh, and you know, we, on the one hand, like you said, Ron, we have these uh, groups that are suing to have inmates released from jails and prisons, and, and then we have this. And while at the same time, there's video of Los Angeles County inmates in their county jail intentionally trying to get infected with COVID so they can be released. I saw that. I saw that very video that you're referring to. You know, these are the types of people that, and we're, we're surprised. What, what was it? Santa Clara, California has a 50% increase in armed robberies since um, mandatory mask wear has been, uh, has been. Come oh, actually Santa, actually Santa Ana, California down. Oh, in, da, Santa down Ana? In, yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because everybody's wearing masks. <laughs> so there, so your Terry stops are going out the window because everybody, including yourself is wearing a mask now. <laughs> Yeah. Tim, what do you think about this whole thing? You know, I like the uh, the term that Kevin uses this this social moral shaming. Yeah, well, this it's a scary time, and uh, and I'm not into the conspiracy stuff, but um, the ability to to morally shame people like this the the debates on Facebook and uh, social media are insane. The the anger that people have about this. Um, we, we have gotten to a, a crazy place and to have a judge 
do that in court. I mean, it's bad enough we do it in society, but to have a judge do that, um, I, it seems to be on the end of uh, inappropriate behavior by him. Well, you know, it's interesting, and I'll, and I'll call out the hypocrisy, and I will, uh, you know, for full disclosure, I, I will say that I haven't checked this story, but it was recently posted on, on social media right after this Judge Moye took this action that perhaps Judge Moye had gotten into trouble himself in the courtroom uh, confronting and fighting literally physically fighting with another judge, going into another judge's chambers and physically fighting him. And so where is the moral outrage about that? And where, if, if true, and I'm saying I don't know if it's true, but if true, where is the judge's self of shame and apology to the public of uh, violating his oath of office and, and, uh, and, and ruining the decorum of the courtroom. You know, I say, I just can't abide by this. But what I'd like to piggyback on is to something that Kevin said. And so I posted this story uh, about this, this poor woman, and, uh, and I got some immediate pushback uh, from a, uh, whether he's current law enforcement command staff or whatever, but he's definitely, he purports to be a, uh, an expert, a court expert like what Kevin and I do, and he pushes back heavily on me and criticizes me uh, and says, well, you know, I'm going to take your comments and I'm going to burn you all over uh, the state of Texas, and I hope no agencies uh, ever allow you to be an expert for them. Well, so what do you think? Uh, two days later, the, the Texas State Supreme Court makes a ruling that this was what Judge Moye did was completely inappropriate and immediately released this woman from jail. So I posted that right back onto social media and, and I heard nothing but crickets from the so-called police expert from Texas. I mean, I can't believe uh, the type of social shaming that we're seeing for, uh, on, on people like ourselves that are, that are trying to educate our law enforcement you know, colleagues and, and I must say that was, of, of all the comments that I personally received, I mean, that was like maybe in the, in the 1% as opposed to 99% of people like all three of us that are saying, you know, this is crazy and common sense has to prevail. Kevin, what do you think? No, I would definitely agree with that. You know, I, in that uh, captain that I talked about earlier, I followed that thread up with as the situation developed in, in Texas. And as the governor called, uh, well, first it was the attorney general, then the governor, and then finally she was released. I posted all that on the thread, you know, and, and people think that, and this is amazing to me, you know, the people that in the past were always so adamant our, about our rights and, and our, our, our First Amendment rights and everything, think it's okay now to deny people the right to worship. You know, the people that were so much about police brutality in the past and these mostly specious, uh, uh, you know, thoughts and, and, and comments about police use of force, ignorant comments, to be perfectly honest, now they're calling for more people to be arrested. And for what? For violating this, once again, this social, I don't know uh, what you'd call these things, uh, social contract is how my lieutenant referred to it. He said, Wearing a mask is now a social contract. I was talking to my wife earlier, and I said, you know, I've worn body armor for, you know, 38 years now. 
concealable body armor to protect myself from, you know, uh, bullets and, and knife attacks. And I'm not going to be shamed by somebody that wants me to put a pot holder on my face. No, you know, that, that's exactly right. And, and so my article is uh, referred to, and I hope people get on the America Out Loud uh, platform open, you know, 24-7, and get on the network and read my recent column entitled Pandemic Policing, The Rise of a New National Socialism. And so I think a lot of people that have not learned their history well forget that, you know, prior to World War II, and of course through World War II, you know, we had the rise of, of groups that were fascist groups and, and uh, national socialist groups. And as a matter of fact, in German, the acronym Nazi, N-A-Z-I, in German refers to the National Socialist Workers' Party. That's what the Nazis were. And so people that think that the Nazis were right-wing extremists uh, are absolutely wrong. They were, they were progressive left socialists. And that's what Adolf Hitler was. And, and when he first started to come into power, he was against uh, the, uh, the current uh, democratic regime uh, in Germany, and he was imprisoned. And during his uh, short time in prison, I think he was in prison for about two years, he wrote his famous book, which sort of became, you know, the little red book, right? You know, if we were talking about Mao and communism, the book was called Mein Kampf or Mind My Struggle in German. And what Hitler said essentially in My Kampf was, we take away the rights and the liberties a little bit at a time, just a little bit at a time a little bit at a time, and people get used to that. You take away a, a couple of rights, a couple of, uh, of, of civil rights, and, and, but you always say it's for the greater good. It's for the safety of the people. It, this is for the people. That's for the people. So there is a governmental need to remove your rights, and that's the little bit of intrusion. And he says if you just take it bite by bite by bite, people won't really notice it until – We've removed all of their rights. And I see this, and I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm trying to make an objective statement based on what I'm seeing where certain, a very minority of the, uh, and I stress that, and I agree with what Tim Barfield says, a, a small minority of the law enforcement community is agreeing to this. And I also agree with what you are saying, Kevin, and that is the people that used to be abhorrent of law enforcement uh, taking what they felt was aggressive actions and uses of force and uh, detentions and arrests are now encouraging the police to do the same thing. I see this as a potential rise of what I refer to as the new national socialism. Tim, your thoughts. Well, I agree with you. And, I, you know, it's, this is the battle that's been going on, quite honestly, since the founding of our country. You have the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists talking about this same general concept. The problem is we, for, we forget to teach um, history, really, in our schools anymore. We're so busy teaching social issues that we have uh, forgotten to teach about this wonderful experiment. We have this thing called America. Um, I guess what I'm hoping in all of this is that as we travel down this road, the 
constitutional, the Constitution and those constitutionalist judges will actually prove us true. You know, the scary thing, Ron, you kind of hit on it here, but I've said this in, in many, uh, I've said this for many years, but when tyranny comes, it'll come in uniform. And this is one of the reasons why of all the people we have to educate, it's got to be our law enforcement people. Absolutely. And I don't think our law enforcement, the, the small minority of law enforcement people, I don't think that they have put it together yet that, you know, people like, uh, like you, Tim and Kevin and I and our colleagues and, and our brothers and sisters uh, that have been killed in the line of duty and those of us that have been injured, both physically injured and, and, and psychologically injured by what we have had to endure protecting people that we don't even know, throwing ourselves into the field of fire uh, without a second thought, because that's the oath we took. And we have spent our entire history, our entire careers trying to portray law enforcement uh, as good role models and to have these people uh, seek to destroy it. And I just don't want to see us head us down this direction. Listen, fellas, we got just a little bit of time left uh, on a thread of evidence, and I would just like you to introduce yourselves. So, Tim Barfield, let's start with you, Chief. Well, thanks, Ron. Again, thank you for the opportunity to share some of my views on this whole thing. Um, I, uh, I've been a policeman since 1981. I, uh, I worked a couple of small places until I ended up in Cleveland, Ohio, in, uh, not, the, not for the city of Cleveland, but in the uh, uh, inner ring suburbs there where I had the opportunity to do a lot of very good policing with a lot of really good people. And uh, at the end of my time there, I had the opportunity to become a chief of police. And uh, I took that and it's, it's a real honor to uh, serve among people and to have the opportunity to to share uh, um, these, these important issues that we talk about here, um, to share with them and to uh, hopefully raise that next generation of constitutionalist police officers. Thanks so much. And, and I, wanna, I want Kevin Davis to, to spend a few moments in talking about himself. Uh, Kevin and I are colleagues. Uh, we work uh, the use of force cases. Kevin is also an extremely popular author. One of his books is a go-to resource in my own library. So Kevin, uh, a, a few words about yourself. Well, thanks, Ron. We can talk about my favorite subject. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I started in law enforcement in 1982, spent uh, eight years as a deputy sheriff uh, where I worked uh, corrections, uh, detective bureau warrants, and uh, patrol. I then left uh, the county sheriffs in 1980 and worked for my current agency, which is a large urban agency, uh, for going on 31 years. Uh, for about 27 years, I was uh, actively instructing in the uh, training bureau where my specialty was use of force. And uh, for the last uh, about three years now, I've been working in the Body Worn Camera Unit. Uh, I have uh, authored two books, as you've been kind enough to mention. First one was Use of Force Investigations, a manual for law enforcement. The second one was, was the Citizen's Guide to Armed Defense. Both those are available at Amazon.com or wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> you know, in, in closing, gentlemen, I, I really want to thank you uh, so much for, for taking uh, this time to, to be on a thread of evidence. And I want to remind our listeners uh, again that, uh, you know, those of us in the law enforcement and forensic community uh, that have spent so much time on the job, we're very, very concerned about the pathway uh, that the United States of America 
could take. You know, there's, we're at the why and the road here. So there is the pathway that we have been on uh, since our inception as a country, uh, as supported by our Constitution and Bill of Rights, uh, where we have inalienable rights uh, provided by God the Creator and not, not by legislatures. You know, you go to Canada, it's a different subject. You go to Great Britain, you go to many of these European nations, it's a different constitution. And they do not believe that our uh, rights, our civil rights are inalienable and, and, and provided by the creator. The, and so if provided by the creator, no man can run asunder and take those rights away. But on the other path, we see a rise of a new national socialism, a return to where we were in Europe in the 20s and 30s. And we have tyrannical dictators that present themselves as mayors, as city council people, as county councils and supervisors, and as governors that would seek to take away the inalienable rights of man. And we just cannot allow that to happen. And law enforcement, as the protectors and enforcers of the rule of law, have to, again, form that thin blue line between safety and security and democracy or national socialism, anarchy, and destruction of our civil rights. I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and law enforcement expert. And we've been today with my guests, Tim Barfield and Kevin Davis. You're listening to A Threat of Evidence on America 